couple of those myself. Uh, can I go for a PBR? Sure. I'll get the darkest thing you have on tap. Okay, I would call it the shoes. I'll take it. I love the shoes. Um, I'll go for a. Let's just. We're gonna go for a quarter order, a half order of French fries. Sure. For now. Yeah, and might order more in a bit. Thank you. The shoots. The shoots. The shoots. You familiar with them? I am. Yeah. And, and every time I hear somebody say it, especially with even the slightest trace of Minnesota accent, it sounds like, oh, the shoots. Oh, the shoots. The shoots. Yeah, the photography was good, especially the shoots. Yeah. And then Stan said, no. I, he, he's not going to help me plow my lawn. And I was like, the shoots. <laughs> what the shoots? What the shoots is he talking about? Talk, talking about. You ready? Yeah. You feeling it? I always, well, yeah, now I am. <laughs> hey, everybody, welcome down to another edition of Dive Bar Mitzvah. Hey, it's me, your friend Ian, and oh, what a difference a week makes. Uh, not but seven days ago, I was sitting in uh, Adrian's Tavern with my dear friend, Brian Miller, and uh, the door was open. It was like 65 degrees outside. There was a song in a lot of people's hearts. Uh, today, I, uh, I came to the bar we're at, uh, White Knuckled horrible outside. There's like an ice storm happening right now. And not the sexy kind with Sigourney Weaver. No, no, no. This is a real, literal ice storm. And it's it's crappy outside. It's going to get worse. But I mean, this first one, you know, on the highway, just ugh. And something else, by the way, fellow Minnesotans listening to this, apparently all you motherfuckers have forgotten how to get out of the way of a cop car. There's a cop car with his lights on. Get the hell over. I saw that when I was driving in. And I'm not shaming you, the listener. But if you know somebody who might be part of the problem, that's okay. Um... Today we are in a uh, bar we have not been to before here in the in the in the brave history of dive bar mitzvah. We are joining uh, a great history of people who've been here. Not only not even a year ago, Barack Obama was sitting about five feet away from where I'm sitting right now. Today we are at the home of the Juicy Lucy, Matt's Bar on Cedar Avenue. I'm willing to bet every food uh, show I've hated has come here. They've probably been at diners, drive-ins, and dives done here but it, they're here but, but they came here for a good reason because a lot of people claim to be the home of the juicy lucy i only believe it here at matt's bar because it looks good the five eight up the street looks like a crap shack they have all sorts of tacky stuff on the wall they're those really bad retro aluminum signs where it's like a hamburger five cents and then there's a picture of betty boop or something it's just tacky it's like somebody's grandma exploded in there but you come to matt's it looks great it is everything you want in a dive bar and the Juicy Lucy holds such sway, even in the white knuckle I did to come here to meet today's guest and perhaps partake in a Juicy Lucy. This place is fucking packed. We waited in line to get our seat on a shitty, cold winter's day. Minnesota still will turn out on the reg for a Juicy Lucy. I'm having a PBR. I mention that not only because I'm thirsty, but mostly because they're my sponsor. Um, and uh, let me uh, and, and a little bit more honesty here for you. Um, I am a wussy uh, podcast host. I'm going to let you in. We've been doing this for like 35 episodes. I'm going to let you in behind the curtain here. I uh, I'm a wuss when it comes to hosting. Most of the people who have been guests thus far, good friends of mine. I knew the answers before I asked them. I knew their backstory, and you know what? I mean, we probably had a similar history, so I could probably make it up if it wasn't right. I basically do not preach to the choir. 
But when I'm bringing people up for the sermon, usually members of the choir, you know, because of, of similar set. Today, I am breaking the mold a little bit. Um, our guest, uh, someone who I've known for many years, but uh, and he he has like he's like a Minnesota Zalik. I wrote down on this piece of paper earlier. He keeps popping up in history around here. I think that's spectacular, and I knew him for years, and I didn't even know many of the things we're about to talk about today because I'm way out of my depth. Uh, let's, we're going to be talking about things I generally don't do at all. Uh, the Renaissance Fair, never been there, never been. Uh, multiplayer, like online games, never played one in my damn life. I know what World of Warcraft is, mostly only because there's, there's ads on, on television for it. Uh, and uh, the last, and, and definitely not the least, uh, kind of the infancy of the internet as we know it today. I was a young kid growing up in Muncie, Indiana with my Macintosh Performa 410. I remember trying to figure out how to get on the internet, but I was, you know, 15 and uh, not very good at it. And then I think I ended up getting America Online, which is just horribly offensive. Uh, but today's guest, I uh, was on the front line on a lot of this stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, your friend and mine, Bob Alberti. How you doing, Bob? Hey, thanks for having me. It's great being here. And boy, the PBR tonight is delicious. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, PBR <laughs> is the greatest. Your PBR a little bit darker in a pint glass, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, uh, what, what your sponsor doesn't know, I don't have to Ex- tell exactly. them. Exactly. So I'm loving my PBR. Delicious, delicious stuff. Uh, now, let's start with uh, vilification tennis, yes. which happens monthly. At the uh, at the Bryant Lake Bowl, right? Correct. Still monthly, and it's and if you're not familiar with it, um, how long have you been a member of the of the troupe? Is it a troupe? Uh, it is a troupe. It is a comedy troupe that has existed for about 25 years mm-hmm. or more. Uh, it has a long history. It began at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival uh, with an empty stage and a bunch of uh, uh, comedians who just felt like fooling around. So yeah. Started insulting each other. So in addition to everything else, you are a bit of an insult comic, although I you're not a comedian. Insult. I'm an insult comic. I have done a little stand-up. Okay. In fact, I've done stand-up internationally. Oh, well, uh, see, like I said, I'm learning something about right. the guest this week. I don't have all the answers in um, front of me. Uh, I, I happen to do stand-up in uh, Telford in uh, England, which is... Uh, tough crowds in Telford, oh, it's I hear. very tough crowd. No, actually, they were a great crowd in Telford. All I had to do was tell uh, Florida man jokes, and I had them in the palm of my hand. Okay. Uh, just tell them just how stupid America is, and they eat it up. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've done that. Uh, but, yeah, I've been with Vilification Tennis for about five years now. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great time. It's a great cast. Uh, you wouldn't know it to see it, but uh, uh, everyone in Vilification Tennis is very serious about their comedy. They yep. take their craft very seriously. And it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to work with all of them, except Eric Knight. Oh, yeah. God, that guy. Yep. But, no, I mean, everyone else is great, uh-huh. except Eric Knight. And I know Eric because he was uh, a regular and drug many of you along to the $50 Pyramid uh, game show I did at the at Grumpy's downtown. And if it wasn't for you, guys, I don't think anyone would have showed up. <laughs> Eric somehow just loved $50 well, Pyramid. And, and, and apparently he either had, either his excitement was contagious or he conned, or he just had dirt on everybody else and made people show up. Well, see, he was so bad at that uh, $50 <laughs> pyramid that we all wanted to go just to beat him. Because as you know, he never won. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Never won. Boy, I'm full of shit here. Oh, can I say full of shit on oh, your yeah, podcast? Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, no. How uh, could we not? Eric uh, actually was the one who introduced me to you uh, and and to the fifty dollar pyramid, which I think is a great format, and I really miss it. And I was um, it was a great concept, a if nothing else. I mean, I, when I came up with the idea, I was like, I want to live in a city that has something called the fifty dollar pyramid. Apparently, I was largely alone in that concept. You're just in the wrong city. Yeah, that's pretty took me, much it. It took me way too long to figure that out. Yeah. Now I've got a house. Oh, that'll teach you. I'm screwed. Except you could host it in your house. I could. That would be interesting. Yeah, but then I'd have to have, tell people where I live. 
And okay. I'm not against it. I mean, I'm not against okay. it. But I kind of like uh, the house I lived in before. Uh, I bought a house it was like a party house, and it was great. Oh. And then I decided this house not a party house. And then I accidentally became kind of like you know just like like a, like a homebody. And I'm like, haha. I can just hide out, and not everybody can come knock on my door at four o'clock in the morning with drugs. And they never heard from Ian Rands. Exactly. There, you mean I've lost friends before I moved there. I've lost friends to Northeast. <laughs> you know, I mean, like you know, it's just like you don't hang out. You're like suddenly mm-hmm. a Northeast person, and, and then you cease to exist. Um, but so anyway, so vilification yeah. tennis, as you said, came out of of, of the Renaissance Fair. Correct. Uh, but you're also involved with the Renaissance Fair. But do you didn't help birth that at all? Not in the least. Um, I was a latecomer to the Renaissance Fair. The only reason I'm involved with it is because we perform at the Renaissance Festival, but vilifiers do not get into the Renaissance Festival for free in order to perform. Oh. So if I wanted to perform at the Renaissance Festival, I would have to pay. Boo. Join. Yeah. And you want to perform, if you're a vilifier, you want to perform at the Renaissance Festival because you perform 16, up to 16 times very quickly in a row across all those weekends. And then for the rest of the year, because we have such a large cast, you might not actually get to perform in a Bryant Lake Bowl show more than once every three or four months. Jeez. And so it's a real boot camp for up-and-coming vilifiers, which I was, uh, to get their their jokes ready, learn their performance and everything. So I wanted to be at Inville at the Renaissance Festival, and so I joined as Klaus de Baker, the German baker who walks around yeah. and puts a flower handprints on your back. When you come up to him, he pats you, he says, can I help you with something? He hits you on the shoulder, and you have a handprint. You walk around all day with a big white handprint on your back. Did we have Germans that far back? Um, actually, the Germans were part of the Renaissance, okay. which is why I chose there this you go. character. I figured it was historically correct, I, but I also this whole episode's about learning for me. Well, you know, I I also thought that the Thank Renaissance you. Festival had plenty of really bad English accents, and yeah. they needed a really bad German Spread accent. Spread it around. All right, this, these fries are probably hot there as we hell. Go. We just got fries, Charlie. Yeah, we got fries. Right, those are pretty hot. I'm gonna put these aside for a mm-hmm. little bit so we can keep chatting. That's fine. Now, um, and let's go over uh, a night at the Bryant Lake Bowl for Vilification mm-hmm. Tennis. For those who are not familiar, what does one go through? Well, the Bryant Lake Bowl is a combined bowling alley, restaurant, yep. and theater, yeah. all, sh- all jammed into about 40 square feet. And yeah, how they right. do it, I don't understand. <laughs> um, but they manage it, and when you come in, you'll pass through the very crowded restaurant area, you'll go around, you'll see the bar, and then you'll see the uh, bowling alley. And then the theater doors open at 9.30, and you can have food and drink. Um, in the theater, which is amazing, because yet again we're dealing with very, very few, very little square footage. That's right, and uh, there's like one or two servers at most. Uh, they do a great job, and so you come in at 9:30, you grab a table, you get a drink and a snack, and then at 10 o'clock the show starts. We'll have two or three rounds of vilification tennis uh, spread out with uh, other improv structures in between. Yeah. So we might do uh, the $50 pyramid. Hey, we why might, not? We might do uh, um, a match game, or we might do straight-up improv structures. Because every month has a different theme. That's right. And now people, now how does the audience, uh, how are they involved in something like this? I mean, are they just are they just watching, or are they, they just laying they, back? They, they need to sit there and shut the fuck up and laugh on cue. That's the best that's way to, that's we the want best audience from our audiences. Yep. Um, they can be brought up on stage occasionally for uh, improv structures, but we don't like we don't insult the audience. Um, we don't uh, subject again, we're in the wrong state for that to I'm humiliation. Yeah. No, no. Um, and uh, yeah, we've got a theme. This theme, this month's theme, uh, the show is this coming Friday night, uh, and the theme is you'll regret this. You Y U L E. You'll regret oh, this. Eh, eh, vilification eh. tennis wait, war on Christmas. In, so that's on what night? 
Um, Friday, so it's to be the day after Thanksgiving? The day after Thanksgiving. Okay, this will be out the Monday after Thanksgiving. Then the next so, show after that <laughs> exactly. That's, there we go. is the 30th of December, the Friday the 30th of December, and it's Fuck 2016. Good. The annual vilification tennis kicks off the, kicks off the new year yeah. and gets rid of the old one. And if ever a year... Needed to be fucked. Yeah, this year needs to be fucked. Yeah, is this going to be an especially vicious takedown of two thousand? There's so much to work with. Well, it, I mean, I can't even tell you two good things that happened in 2014. Right. But I mean, here we are with just nothing but a parade of shit so far. And and we still have you know we still have a month to go. Yeah, it's like <laughs> what what's 2016's finishing move going to be? Is it yeah. going to rip our spines out and spin them in the air? I don't know. Um, it's going to be a pretty good show. It won't be as good as it might be because I wasn't cast in it. So, oh, you know, it, it won't be as funny as That's big of you for mentioning it at all. Well, yes, of course. Uh, you know, I, I do my part. Um, so, yeah, that's that's Vilification Tennis. We also have our amateur tryouts coming up in February. Because I was going to ask, how does someone be, how, how does some, just a member of the masses, the unwashed masses, get pulled into superstardom like this, Bob? Well, a long time ago, you used to just walk up on stage, and if you were funny, you were in the cast. <laughs> yeah, but uh, then people wouldn't get off the stage if they weren't funny, I imagine. Well, and, and they still haven't. Some of them are still there, like Eric Knight. Um, but... Uh, uh, nowadays, what you do is if you want to be part of Vilification Tennis, you audition live on stage. We've got 10 people who Jeez, signed up this no year. No pressure. You audition live on stage, and you are put through the ringer. Yeah. And you're eliminated. People are eliminated left and right. So Just based solely on, on, on the fellow on the, on the cast members? Uh, or, is the, or does the audience play into this at all? Uh, no, there is a, a collection of judges mm -hmm. who watch the performance, and they're constantly working backstage to select the next person <clears throat> to be voted off. And, like, last year, they had their work cut out for them. Because you used to be able to count on getting some really sucky people that you could just boot first, second, third. Yeah. Last year's crew was all aces, and it was really, really hard for them to decide to who to get rid of. Yeah. Uh, so last year uh, was very difficult. Um, this year is also going to be difficult. But one feature to this year's show, the amateur show, is my son is trying out. Okay. I know your son. Yeah, Leo. Is now, why, why so is he not, trying well, out? No, but I mean, a lot of kids, they will rebel. Mm -hmm. They'll go against it. But the, he's actually trying to follow in the old man's footsteps. That has to be complimentary. No. That has to feel nice. No, he just wants to show me that he's funnier than I am. Oh, and and okay. I think he probably will. He's certainly better looking. So, <laughs> you know, if they if they go for eye candy, they'll probably pick him. And the one we have one on the 30th, you said. On the 30th of December, the yes. The 2016 Correct. Gala. That's right. Make sure you see that one because they're always fun. And this is a hack question. Sure. But in the four years you've been in a part of Vilification Tennis, what is the best insult you've heard? The best insult I've heard. And you could give me several. There doesn't have to be just one. Well, my favorite one that I throw, um, because those come to mind most easily. Of course, yeah. Is um, Eric was so depressed about his awful comedic timing, he threw himself behind a train. Okay. All right. Not bad, not bad. Yeah. Um, other ones are, uh, let me see, uh, the one that uh, Matt Alex used to always throw was... Uh, in high school, they called her the Millennium Falcon. You came in that thing? You're braver than I thought. <laughs> you see, Matt's gets a much better laugh than mine. Matt has left the castle, so I'm stealing his joke. Good, as you should. Now, uh, you are more than just uh, a dude who, uh, who has done stuff with vilification tennis. You were involved with the uh, nascent internet technology gopher. That's which right. Which blows my mind. Now, I am... Um, this is kind of... And Seal comes on right in time for yep, this. Isn't that perfect? It's, it's timely. Um... But so I had no idea. I, I'd known you for years, and then I was just reading some article about Gopher because I and I didn't. When I, I moved here in 1994, and I had friends before that 
who were really into the internet. Like, I was in high school, they were in college, and they kind of knew all the hip stuff. So I uh, was kind of following their lead, and I knew about Gopher, but then, you know, I heard about a bunch of stuff, and there was just one of those names I hadn't thought of in ever. So I was reading this article, and, you know, I was like, oh, my God, Gopher was started here. Well, that makes a lot of damn sense, the whole U of M. And then I was reading it, reading it, reading it, and then I saw your name, which just which blew my damn mind. So Gopher, basically, I mean, and this is hard for people to believe, but, I mean, the World Wide Web wasn't always the always wasn't was what it was. People just assume that the Internet is the World Wide Web and vice versa. But before the World Wide Web was established, there were other protocols that could have used. I still use FTP now for, like, moving large files. But you guys helped start Gopher, which was a way to navigate the web in a non in, before the web was the web. I'm not doing a very good job explaining it. Bob, give me a quick primer on what Gopher was. Sure. Gopher was the world's first situation that offered hyperlinks, which is the ability to click on something and go somewhere else, and then search engines. Mm-hmm. And so those two things combined meant that Gopher was the first time that you could use the internet to find something before you knew where it was first. Let yeah. me rephrase that. It was the first time you could find something without knowing in advance where it was. That's what I was trying like to say. You'd have to type in the exact spot into a browser. It used to be the case that if you wanted to get a file off the internet, you'd call up your friend and you'd say, hey, I need this file. He'd say, okay, here's the IP address of my computer. Use FTP, log in as a guest, and you can download it. Yeah. That was the only way you could find things. What Gopher did is it abstracted the data away from the underlying computer layer. And I hope that's not too much of a, of a you know, technical term. But it basically pulled the data out of the computers. It didn't matter what computer the information was on. Gopher could find it and simply hand it to you. Wow. And at the time, that was novel. You, you, well, didn't, you couldn't it was kind click. of revolutionary. You, it was revolutionary. We didn't know that at the time. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what we were doing. It, it initially started at the U of M as a, a tool just for the university's campus. But because we didn't develop it the right way and we kind of didn't end around, around a, a rather self-important committee, they forbade us from doing any more work with it. Which is insanity. I mean, no. And, and uh, to dear listener of Diver Mitzvah, I highly recommend uh, you look up the handful of articles there are on this. Because I mean, it ended up turning into what was called the first viral application because you guys are being stifled by you, by the, by the, by the suits at the U. Right. The, the mainframe invested people at the U, the, the people who didn't believe microcomputers had a future, uh, were very invested in writing a big, gigantic program that would do everything which is always the wrong way to go about yep. stuff. We wrote, my, my boss got tired of the meetings, and he said, in one month, we're going to write the program they ought to be writing. Because they had, um, in the research I did for this, they had written a very big book about what it should be, but no code to actually make it into something. They'd written a big, thick phone book-sized, sorry, kids, a phone book used to be how people <laughs> looked up phone numbers, um, a big, thick book of, of what the program would do, but they hadn't started coding any of it after yep. three years. And so my boss said, enough of this. We wrote Gopher in a month. Were these guys just doing, just holding up anything just to keep their jobs of not doing anything for a living? Well, because software development used to be so difficult and so specialized, you had to get everything perfect before you started. Oh. When microcomputers came along, they allowed you to try it. It didn't work. Fix it. Try it. It didn't work. Fix it. Try it. It didn't work. Fix it. And you could evolve your code. But they came from a mainframe background where you had to have it perfect the first time. Um, And so they were stuck. The old guard. They were old guard. So we wrote Gopher, and we debuted it at this meeting, and they got furious, and they said, never speak that <laughs> name again. So what, what did we do? We put it on our FTP server. We contacted some colleagues a around the country. FTP server? Yeah, we put it on a U of M FTP server. We contacted some colleagues around the country. We said, we're not allowed to work on this anymore, but you can. Yeah, and so brilliant. 
They picked it up. They that started that, working I mean, on it. That, there, there had been no architecture to think of a hive mind yet, nope. though. I mean, was this just <clears throat> the logical thing to do? Yes. I mean, is this just, this is just uh, brilliance out of uh, desperation? It was, and it was also out of a different culture on the Internet, because prior to the Internet moving off of its, uh, off its initial defense-related and education-related uh, uh, beginnings, uh, the, the Internet was very collaborative. Mm. You wrote software with no expectation of making money and with full expectation that everybody else would look at it and say, oh, here's how I can fix it. So at that time, when there were only a few hundred computers on the Internet and everybody was a computer programmer, um, it was a huge collaborative effort. And so Gopher itself was like one of the final demonstrations of that kind of collaborative uh, undertaking because by 1994 the internet had been, had gone private software started to become commoditized and people just stopped handing stuff out for free the way that we just all did during yeah. the 80s yeah so. but I mean it was done I mean I, I mean the old quote is ideas are free I yeah. mean and was it kind of born out of an idealism of the 60s or is it based more out of you know egalitarian where it's just like well I made this you can make this too we can make we can both make it better well gopher emerged from the 1980s uh, entrepreneurial culture that was the, on the internet everybody was just trying to make that sucker work okay. during well, the when 80s. I hear entrepreneurial I, I think people making money. Well, nobody was making money. In fact, making money was considered crass. Yeah. If, you, if you had a dot-com address, that was considered, why are you making money off of this public resource? Mm -hmm. It'd be like setting up a hot dog stand in a library without permission. Okay. Um, That's a very odd analogy to make, but I follow it. Okay. <laughs> um, but that all changed by 94. And by 94, it was like, nope, the Internet has gone private. The, the, the U.S. government has separated itself from that. And go for it, kids. Make your money. And so the Gopher was kind of the last gasp of that old sort of uh, everybody collaborate and work together yeah. undertaking uh, in building big software development on the Internet. Can you imagine a scenario where it could have gone any different way? Because um, doing the research for this, the, what the, the, the big thing that kind of drug this down was a graphics-heavy web, which we now understand now. It was much more text-based where it right. would work for a cheap, crappy modem. Is there any way that it wasn't going to end up this way? Because you could have been, you know, I mean, you were on the front row for something very big, but you also could have then theoretically become stupid rich. Am I right? Well, yes and theoretically. no. Yes and no. I mean, theoretically, yes. It would have... There's The development of anything, including companies and ideas, goes through a, a, a sort of an S-shaped growth graph mm -hmm. where... It launches itself up, it becomes very uh, popular, it hits a plateau, and then when it hits that plateau, it changes. I'm a person, and I've demonstrated this to myself over and over through the years, I'm a person who's really good at that up-ramp portion. Mm -hmm. I'm good at ideas, and I'm good at vision. Um, I'm not good at that plateau maintenance thing. I see. And, I'm, and I'm not good at it enough to the point where I've given up even trying. <laughs> and, and so I know my role, and my role is to throw ideas out there and make them work. Um, and so would I have ever become rich? No, okay. because I'm just not the right guy for that. But could have Gopher, Gopher been synonymous with what the web... I mean, the world, the World Wide Web was not a term yet. I mean, could we right. be talking about gophering? We could however, all be talking or, or, or about the gophering. Active, active it it, it was, certainly wasn't impossible, um, but it would have required uh, a leap of vision at that point yeah. that we didn't have and other people had had already. Now, do you how much of this came out of the fact that it was from an education point of view? How much of this did come out of the fact that it was, you know, from a school which had stopped supporting you entirely? 
I mean, um, it, had there been had there been like some bloodthirsty, you know, guy in a suit who had, I got an idea. I mean, could that well, have been the that could have that have been what made the it, turn? It could have. I could have been the guy. I had been an entrepreneur before I was at the university to write Gopher. I had run my own business, which we can talk about. In which a bit. that's next. Yeah. Um, so I already had an entrepreneurial mindset, and I actually approached our boss's boss at one point and said, "Hey, we should go private with this. We should turn it into a thing." Damn straight. He was a career academician at the university, and he looked at me as if I'd just sprouted a third head. <laughs> um, the idea of leaving the university couldn't have been more foreign to him at all. And so that never happened. Now, if he had been someone else, he might have said, hey, yeah, let's get some backers and turn this into a thing. Yep. Um, and maybe Gopher could have gone someplace, but it didn't. And then Minnesota would have been Silicon Valley. Minnesota was Silicon Valley. Now, tell me about that. Uh, if you look at... Control Data, Univac, IBM, Honeywell, um, uh, Cray, all of the companies that started Silicon Valley in California in the 70s, many of them were in Minnesota in the 60s and 50s. Really? And the reason that Silicon Valley went where it is is because who the hell wants to live in Minnesota? Yeah. Um, and so when they got to a certain level of success, a lot of these companies and their and their people relocated to California because why not? Yeah. yeah um, right. So... Actually, Silicon Valley has a lot of roots that come back to Minnesota, which is why we had this fertile computing environment that I grew up in here in the Twin Cities. And how did you first get uh, introduced to computers? Well, I mean, because you not only hit the ground running, but you were you were a little bit older than a lot of the other guys who were doing Gopher, right? Now, I was the young... Well, was I? Well, no, I was in the middle. Okay. okay. My boss was older, Farhad was older, a couple people were older, and, and then... a because like, I remember reading Paul about there being, young, uh, being a division because they were, you know, more into punk rock and mud honey, and you were uh, into slower stuff. Which I, I guess I'm, put me made me guess that you were older. No, I'm just a dork. Um, <laughs> I was never into hard rock music, uh, and I'm still only into folk. So you know, what do you want from me? Um, but I got I got crazy lucky. Um, I grew up in Queens, New York, which was not good, and then in New Jersey for a few years, which was also not good. Yeah. And then I got dropped out in a farm town. I got dropped out in St. Francis. Were you kicked out? In northern Anoka County. Did your family County. come with you, or did they tell you to leave? Uh, I almost wish, but no. Um, my mother is from Minnesota. Oh, okay, okay. And when they moved back from the East Coast after my grandmother died, my father was taking care of her. Um, after my grandmother died, we could come back to Minnesota. Um, they had enough money because the East Coast is so expensive that they could afford to buy a house on a lake in outstate Minnesota. Yeah. Which was a big change for me. I'd, I would imagine so. I'd literally grown up where you went swimming when the sewers overflooded. I mean, you'd go down to the corner and you'd swim in the sewage. As hard rock band Van Halen called it, <laughs> mean streets. Exactly. And so from Queens, five years later, I find myself on a lake in outstate Minnesota. And um, in this farm town, uh, I would have been really stuck except that we had that one teacher that everyone always wants to have yeah we had in my case it was dr noel johnson and he was the guy who was stuck out in this farm town too <laughs> and he was going to make the best of it so he'd already brought in a computer and so it was 1975 okay. or six in saint francis the little farm town and here is this giant refrigerator sized computer in wow. one of the in one of the offices and so i got involved in computers in ninth grade uh, ninth grade summer between ninth and tenth grades, I actually taught computer classes for summer school, um, and that's kind of where my computing career began. So, because I had this background with Noel how Johnson, how did he get a goddamn computer in a in a I mean, a, a classroom sized computer into? I mean, that's that's some he was sway. he was brilliant. It was a PDP eight L, and it ran Focal, and um, the 
the guy who was a senior when I was a freshman, Daryl Ricky, he ended up going off uh, to run Los, parts of Los Alamos National Laboratory. Okay, wow. So there was a lot of brilliant people who just happened to be there in that school, and also me. And um, <laughs> and so because of that, we had a connection. I'll back up a little bit. I told you about all the companies that became Silicon yes. Valley. Well, those companies had funded the University of Minnesota to put computer terminals in every school in the country, in the state. Wow. All of them wired together to a mainframe that was in Lauderdale uh, in St. Paul. <coughs> really? Yes. Lauderdale of all places. Yes. Uh, I know Lauderdale, but two, I'd never... 280 in Broadway, there's, yeah, exactly. a, there's a car dealership and like some kind of truck rental place. Well, that used to be the University of Minnesota Computing Center, no and shit. that's where the computers were that, um, that ran all the computing for the state of Minnesota. That's fascinating. And so when I was a freshman in high school, I could get on something analogous to the internet in 1976. Wow. Well, if you take a bunch of teenagers with nothing to do except compete with each other, yeah. they're going to come up with some stuff. Okay. And that's what we did. Uh, my buddy Steve Collins at the University of Minnesota, he wrote one of the world's first chat programs, Captain Collins Talk. Wow. And that's how I got connected with people who I still know to this day in the, in the computer field. Um, and one of the things that we had was a game, uh, which was called Milieu, uh, which I'll also, Milieu. Ref which I'll also refer to as Scepter. But it was one of the very earliest online interactive Dungeons and Dragons programs. Okay, um, and it was written by Alan Cleats, and it was brilliant. Now, he, was this a Dungeons a Dungeons and Dragons type program? Because is that a copywritten thing to have to be? Uh, it was no Dungeons and Dragons words about it. We yeah, were yeah, yeah, yeah. we were okay. a bunch of kids anyway. No, I we yeah. didn't care. Um, but I mean, you could get together with your friend. I could get together with a kid from Argyle, Minnesota, and we could go into the, a room together and fight a dragon together cool. and defeat the dragon and split the treasure and leave. Wow. And this was 1976 we could do this. Um, to make this work, Alan Cleats invented things that weren't invented independently for another 10, 15 years. Really? He, he invented swapped paged memory, and okay. he was using. Uh, computing resources on the hard drive controllers of the computers in Lauderdale because the computers themselves weren't powerful enough. I see. And okay. so he was taking, he was sending some of the programs off to the drive controllers to get processed and then deliver their information back. And this is this had never been thought of before. And and he's he's like a high school kid. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and he, I mean, it was it was incredible. It was really incredible what he accomplished. So MEC is what this was called. This computer system called MEC existed until 1983. MECC, -E okay. Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, and it was all. Those also the people who made like Oregon Trail game. Okay, yeah, of course, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So MEC existed as a com as a computer service until 1983, and then Apple computers came to the state legislature and they said, mainframes, those are so last year. Yeah. Why don't you scrap that mainframe and put Apple II computers in oh, all of the classrooms yeah, around okay. the state? And that's why, for ten more years, Apple II computers d gathered dust in a corner in all these <laughs> in all these uh, classrooms around the state. So when they were going to take down Mech, I was 22 years old, and I was like, "Huh, I think people would pay money to be able to keep doing what Mech lets them do." Yeah. And so I contacted Alan Cleats because he was the most brilliant programmer I knew of, and I said, "What do you think we run a business doing this?" And he agreed, and he actually wrote the operating system no, himself, okay. got the computer working the whole nine yards, and we put up Gamebit Multisystems, okay. which featured his game, Milieu, except now it was called Scepter of Goth. And that was the world. Which, which is a you know, braver name. It's a braver than Milieu. name than Milieu. Very French. Yeah, Milieu. Yeah, yeah. Scepter of Goth. Whap, someone hit, it, hit them with it. So anyway, uh, Scepter of Goth was the world's first commercial 
multi-user online role-playing game, or MMORPG as they're called these mm -hmm. days. Back when massively multi-user meant 16 people yeah. and online meant a, meant a modem. Um, and uh, Professor Richard Bartle... This is, but this is still years beyond people's comprehension. You mentioned it very casually, but oh, this yeah. was... This is fucking 15 years before, I mean, before this was a thing. It was 1983, and we were offering email, chat, software development space, and other interactive games, as, re as well as Scepter, to an audience of people who did not know they wanted it, needed it, or what they would use it for. It's mind-blowing. We had to explain... That's fucking mind-blowing. We had to explain email to people who had never heard of email, and well, why would they want it? of course. They were like, why would I want this? Is, this? This, is, this is insane. It was nuts. It was a great time. Um... So, of course, you know, there had to be a fly in the ointment. We ended up hiring a, a, a programmer to work with us, and his immediate thing to do was to copy all of our software and set up a competing uh, service in town. Really? Yes. Uh, and so uh, he set up a competing service, uh, priced us out by not actually making any money. He just charged $10 a month. Jesus. And uh, we were forced to franchise. And so that okay. forced us to make much more money than we had been making before. It was very okay, upsetting. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what happened to the asshole? Uh, his name was <laughs> and um, I, I'm not, do I have to edit that I'm not, no you're not I'm not hiding anything hell it's a long time ago uh, so this asshole cost me a bunch of friends um, and he eventually went out of business and then years later I was at a company and at a company meeting on a Thursday uh, my boss said hey we got a new employee he starts next uh, Monday but I invited him to the company meeting uh, to meet people here's uh, and I looked at him and I said to my boss, I'll talk to you in the morning. And in the morning I said to my boss, well, you can either hire him or I'm going to keep working here. And if you, do, yeah. if you hire him, I leave. I'm exactly. not giving you an ultimatum. I'm just telling you this is what has to happen. So I didn't get that job. <laughs> so, you know, karma, bitches. Yeah, exactly. But so you had to franchise, mm -hmm. which, I mean, how did that change everything for you? Because well, I mean, that right was, now, I mean, what was it like beforehand? It was just, you know, pretty regional, local thing, right? Well, it was a regional, local thing, and I was doing everything that, that, that Alan wasn't doing. Mm -hmm. Alan, for so it was a two-person company. Though. It was four people, okay. my dad and another guy. Yeah, but, your father was involved. I have that written down as a note. Yeah. My dad did not have the best customer service skills, so his assistant Any good dad doesn't. His assistance was... Uh, challenging at times to put it to put it mildly um but um it was a very it was a very intense effort and a lot of work but then he was the one who, who figured out how to franchise it and do all that so he he played his part in in how this worked as well um so we franchised we made a fortune franchising and what was interesting about that is we set up uh, other ser servers. And where did you franchise to? In 13 cities in the U.S. and Canada. Oh, well, okay. So California, D.C., Toronto. All damn over. All, all damn over the place. And um, the people who set those franchises up are today the movers and shakers of the online gaming industry. The ones who stayed in it ended up starting their careers there. Really? So, Brett Vickers, who I believe uh, was behind uh, Guild Wars. Okay. Um, I can't remember the other names off the top of my head. Um, but a number of the people who are, uh, you know, VPs and presidents uh, and software developers um, for BioWare and uh, World of Warcraft, stuff like that, their first business foray, foray was as a franchisee of Scepter. Wow. Um, and I'm looking at you, mm -hmm. and you know, and, and impressions can be deceiving, but you do not seem rich nor I angry. I still managed to not make any money at this. Yes, in the end. But I mean, the angry part, 
I find more remarkable. Um, I, I'm way past. I mean, and I don't mean to like say that no. you know, that your life has now become nothing, and that you're just you know a mere a mere shadow of what you could have been, because that's bullshit. But I mean, you know, when you say stuff like this, it's just like, well, there's gotta. I mean, that's that's gotta rub. It it would probably help if I cared about money. Okay, I don't. Um, that's a problem for me making money because mm. I'm not motivated by it and it bores me. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, energized by novelty and uh, creativity and money bores the hell out of me. Yep. Um, so that's you know that may sound like an excuse for why I'm not wealthier. No, not at all. Um, but I mean, you don't need to explain it. But no, that's it, a good it, reason. It, it's also the case that I was way too far ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, and that, again, has to do with that whole development curve that I was talking about where I'm in that slopey part. That's where I would do, I work best. That's not where money gets made yeah. best. The money gets made in the plateau area. Yeah, you're good at pushing. You're good with concepting. But when it comes to, like, showing up on another day and having to figure out, you know. Yeah. I am great at ideas. I am great at long-range vision and planning. I mean, I got into Internet security in 1996 wow. because I was able to look at it and go, huh, today I can put a badge on and call myself sheriff. 20 years from now, 20 years from now, you're going to need certifications and college degrees yep. and all that. And yet I can just stick a badge on today. And if I do this for 20 years, I'll be in like Flynn. That plan worked perfectly. Really? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, that I, I saw that 20 years out and lived it. And yeah, so that's what I'm good at. I'm good at long range visions, vision uh, ideas, things like that. But I'm really crappy at ongoing operations and making money and... You know that's that's other people's strengths and good for them. Yeah, and before we get into what you're doing now, sure, I have a separate question. Yeah, what do you think the oldest game that's still being played is? Now, obviously, there are games that were that you know be the same concept and let's change the name. Well, but I mean, as far as like, we're not talking about Senate, like we're not talking nah. Egyptian pebble oh. games. We're oh, not okay. talking about that. No, I, I mean, thought you said Senate. Is no, like not the clowns in Congress. No. Yeah. I think Senate and S E N E T is as like a one of the oldest game. board like, games. I mean, what's the um, oldest oldest code that has probably been continued, updated, or overhauled that is still out there? You think? I would say Hunt the Wumpus okay. is probably the oldest program you could find online and still play. Really? Okay. Yeah. There was an older game which was. A business. And what was Hunt the Wumpus? If you, if you oh, don't Hunt, mind me Hunt, asking. Hunt the Wumpus is a silly little game where you have a number of numbered rooms. All of this is in text, and you're given clues that you feel a breeze, you hear the wumpus, you smell the wumpus through various doorways, and since these don't have physical reality, they're arbitrarily linked. Um, you have to guess that the wumpus is in the next room adjacent to you, and then you get to fire an arrow through a doorway, and if mm -hmm. you're lucky, you hit the wumpus, and if you're not lucky, the arrow goes all awry and you don't hit the wumpus. But and if it, you go it, into the yeah. room with the well, wumpus, you die. Okay, because the wumpus is bad. The wumpus is bad enough but that hence he kills you. Hence you. you head hunting so, him, I guess. So you have to hunt the wumpus, but not enter his room. You have to shoot an arrow into the proper doorway. So it's a, and you mentioned these are, these can still be you know you played can still and, find and emulated online. Do you ever do that? Do you ever play any of these old games to I, like I, take you back to your childhood? Well, I do occasionally. Um, I've I just played Oregon Trail on an emulator the other day, uh -huh. um, and I have played. Um, gosh, I'm trying to remember what some of these other games were that I've played online. Oh, uh, Plato Computers. It's another Minnesota company that ended up being part of the whole uh, computer environment. Plato computers in the 1970s were phenomenal because they had what was called vector graphics. Mm -hmm. So you had graphic games in yeah. the 70s before you had them in any other way. 
And I was, a, again, in high school, I was like 15 years old when Dr. J uh, brought in a Play-Doh computer. And we got to play an interactive uh, high-speed Star Wars game with little Star Wars ships shooting little lasers at each other. How the hell did he get that? I don't know how the hell he got that. <laughs> but these Play-Doh computers... Nobody were, was asking, everyone was playing. I, well, I was too young to even understand it. Yeah. But I knew I had to had my socks blown off. Because I like got on, I'm flying the Enterprise around. This is like seven years after Star Trek went off the yeah, air. Yeah, so this is yeah, re- yeah. This is recent yeah. in my time. Um, so I'm flying an actual Enterprise when all of a sudden a Klingon ship run by some other guy in some other place around the world shows up, lasers the snot out of me, blows me into little fragments, and then flies off. And I was thrilled. I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually in Star Trek. I want to figure out how to be the Klingon. Right. That's a great thing. Like right? I'm just sitting in Alberta. You know, I'm just like, ha-ha. And exactly. Fly in, blow somebody up, get the hell out of there. And that I, sounds great. And I mentioned that because there are Play-Doh emulators out there, and you can find and play this game and on, is it as you on remember the internet. It? It is, yeah. Because it's, that's the thing. I mean, like you play, like let's say that uh, your your fa- your parents, your grandparents had a Monopoly game or a Sorry game or something like that. That's you know in a closet mm-hmm. and it ha- and where it's been on and off for the last 50, 40 years. That's going to show signs of age. That's mm-hmm. going to get dusty. There'll be something there. But when you look at code on a screen, it's as I mean when you open a, a, an email that's fifteen years old, it's the same as it was the day you got it. I mean, how odd is that that nostalgia now doesn't have any obvious signs of age up and above obvious technology problems. Right. Well I mean you go to the Oregon Trail emulator online and you're playing on an Apple II emulator. Yeah. So it looks and behaves exactly like the game that you might remember if you're old enough. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's uh, it's pretty funny that you can recreate that whole experience. So, and as you mentioned, now yes. you are in security. I uh, have in been internet security. I have been involved in the internet since the Carter administration, and in '96, I transitioned into security with a very definite focus. Um, and so you I'm put a, the sheriff's badge on. I should put the sheriff's badge on. I spent the the 2000s. I was an independent consultant, uh, which you'd think I would make a lot of money at that, but I got out of it in 2013. Because between healthcare costs and taxes, more than half of my money was being evaporated uh. by those two costs. So I was tired by then, and I took the job at the University of Minnesota as uh, information security architect. So you're back at the U. I am back at the U, and the funny thing was that when I went back to the U after 20 years away, the person I talked to on the phone said, so would you like your old email account back? Wow. And, I, and I logged in, and all my old messages were there. Really? They kept the whole damn thing. Is that is that highly unusual? I imagine, right? I, my, I don't know. All I know is, you know, it. They, 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 the organization, uh, the computing organization, was the same one, staffed by some of the same people, and uh, they never had cause to purge the old a- accounts, so they cool. didn't. Yeah. So I ended up getting my email back, and it was very strange. And I guess, you know, I mean, this has been a real, you know, we're obviously just, you know, needle dropping, as vinyl collectors say, sure. uh, through your story. Thank you for spending the time with me, though. But what's next? Not only for you, but for every, it seems like you, if, if one common thread has run through your life, you have been prescient on what's coming up. What are you looking at for the, the next in technology? In no te- pressure. In technology, uh, the, con- the, the word that you want to look for is abstraction. And that means that the, the broader concepts separate themselves from the underlying support structures. And the, this repeats itself over and over in the computer field. For example, these days, P- 
people have virtual computers, right? You can get a virtual machine on any one of a number of places like Amazon, and it's like you have your own computer, but it doesn't really exist. It's just an emulated computer inside another computer at Amazon that they're reselling. That's abstracting the computer away from its underlying hardware. Not only are you talking about, I asked you about the future, you told me about the present, but now the present seems like the future because I have no idea what this is. Well, you can buy an abstract, you can buy a non-existent computer? Yes. You, what a scam. You, you, can, you can buy a non-existent computer and use it for things. Can I, can, can I sell some? Sure. You can. I mean, it seems like that's a great gig. It, it is a great gig, and there's a lot of benefits to doing it, such as you don't actually have to really replace that computer. It's almost like leasing a car. You always have the latest and greatest because it's actually somebody else's computer, and they're taking care of all that. My, my friend Peter Gamash, he, uh, he offered me a virtual computer on his own system for a while when mine broke. See, he, this is like, I mean, this is the problem with, a, with an audio podcast is because I just have a look of being dumbfounded. <laughs> I can't even ask follow-up questions. So you, okay, so you have a laptop, let's say, and you, right. can, and you can basically take processing speed from another computer somewhere right. else. Well, so, I guess so that makes some sense. So imagine that you have um, a computer that you buy that is, remains perpetually the latest and greatest computer because instead of buying a piece of hardware, you subscribe to yeah. a kind of computer. Okay. So you could subscribe to the latest Macintosh, mm -hmm. and then your computer hardware would simply always um, be running the latest OS. You wouldn't have to maintain it. If your hardware were lost, broken, or stolen, you buy another one of the pieces of hardware, and your desktop, your desktop yeah, just appears as soon as you turn it on. Completely and unchanged. Is, and this is different from the cloud because cloud is more storage-based. Well, this would be cloud-based, okay. and, and that's part of it. The cloud itself is an abstraction of the computer. Oh, we're way, we're way above my depth right now, so, Bob Alberti. We're so my, my, my TLDR on this is then continued abstraction. Okay. That's, that's where the computing field is going. But, I mean, now it's just like, I mean, when are we going to get the flying cars? When are we going to get, when is it going to be like, when do we just think of something and then words appear? Bob Alberti, when? We'll never get flying cars. They are the worst idea ever. Just They're imagine cool to talk about. Imagine your grandma parallel parking a regular car. Now imagine her trying to parallel park a fucking car that lifts into the air. Do you know how many people would die with grandma's Oldsmobile flying car in their living room or, yeah. or on their picnic table? No, they'll never actually be flying cars. I, I, I'll hazard that one. Well, and on that uplifting note, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Birdie, our guest this week at Dive Crusher of Dreams. Ugh. Bob, thank you for doing this. I'm going to let you eat it's some fries because the fries have been getting cold while you've been That's doing all, right. all of the work this podcast. But seriously, thank I'm you again for being here. Very pleased to be asked. Vilification Tennis can be found where on the Internet? Uh, VilificationTennis.com. Perfect. What you, else do you have to push? You what can also visit Fearless Comedy Productions, yep. which is not connected to Vilification Tennis. They just have similar members. Um, and you can find out about all the shows Vilification, or the, all the shows that Fearless Comedy Productions is doing. Um, and... Um, at some point, you'll be able to visit my photography website, albatross.org, but not right now because it's broken. So, Well, who knows when this is. I mean, people will be listening to this well into the future. Well, this will prompt me to actually get off my ass and fix it. So, so albatross.org. .org. That's right. where I put my photography. Bitchin. Bob, thank you again. Eat some fries. I'll you have been fries. doing all of the work this podcast, and I thank you. Um, but at a moment for our sponsors, everybody. Here, hold on. Let me have a drink of my delicious PBR while we listen to Joe Cocker. Delicious PBR. Ah, it's the Prince of Beers. Always in the picture and always in good taste. Pabst Blue Ribbon. Add extra flair to those leisure time activities. Put original Pabst Blue Ribbon in the picture. People of good taste naturally go for its old time beer flavor. Original Pabst. Brewed as it was when it won the Blue Ribbon in 1893. So next time, 
Put yourself in the picture. Enjoy original Pabst Blue Ribbon. And our friends at Stand Up Records. We like our comedy like we like our booze. Straight up and bitter. Check them out at StandUpRecords.com. They have new albums out all the time, including one by Mike Stanley, which is also going to have a special attached to it, too, that will be found at the Stand Up channel on Roku. If you haven't done that already, you need to. Uh, get a Roku. They're like 20 bucks. Go to the Roku. channel store under comedy. Find uh, st- find up find the stand-up channel and download away. And hey, everybody, um, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. But you know what would make me thankful? Stopping by Triviasco every Thursday at uh, at the Country Bar in lovely Lynn Lake. What else do I have to plug? Not much because it's cold and I don't want to leave the house. But thank you very much for listening to Dive Bar Mitzvah. One thing I do have to push is uh, please like and share this with everybody. We've been getting a lot of good response since we've come back. Thank you very much for that uh, because that's the only way I really get paid for this crap. Your love and adulation. So adulate love at me all the time. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next time. The fries would have been better warm. I'm sorry for making you talk. No, no, no. no well, no, you, didn't, you, you didn't make me talk. You you're, couldn't stop me. You're a good talker.